You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 204 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich, and unfortunately, sadly, regrettably, Tracy won't be with us today. Uh, She's visiting family, but we thought it would be important to get a new episode out to you guys this weekend, so that means I'll be flying solo for this show. Yeah, I know. Tracy is not only the better half of our marriage, but she's also the better half of this podcast. Um, But we, that is you and I, dear listeners, will soldier on and finish up our discussion of the Emancipation Proclamation. All right, so when we left off last time, it was September 22nd, 1862, five days after the Battle of Antietam. And Abraham Lincoln had just announced his preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. And what we really tried to show in our discussion previous to that point is that Lincoln's issuing of that preliminary proclamation was part of a progression of events, was another step forward, if you will, in an accumulating series of policy decisions by Congress and the Lincoln administration regarding slavery as they responded to the shifting course of the war, the tide of Northern public opinion, and the steady arrival of fugitive slaves within Union lines. What we tried to show is that Lincoln's preliminary proclamation was a vitally important and undeniably dramatic act but it was only one part of a broader, ongoing Republican assault on slavery. Because, as Frederick Douglass had predicted back in May of 1861, secession and the onset of the war had resulted in an inexorable logic of events that was leading to the destruction of slavery. Frederick Douglass called the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation the most important document ever issued by an American president, the, quote, first chapter in a new national story. And praise poured into the White House. All that a vain man could hope for, Lincoln wrote. But while Republicans and many Northerners praised Lincoln's decision, there was also immediate and bitter condemnation of it. 
English newspapers warned ominously that it would ignite a bloody race war across the South. The London Times shrieked that the preliminary proclamation was an invitation for slaves to engage in, quote, burning, ravishing, massacring, and destroying, end quote. Closer to home, the stock market declined, and infuriated Democrats predicted that northern soldiers, who had been willing to fight for the Union, would now desert in droves, unwilling to fight a war to free the slaves. Well, as it turned out, the stock market could take care of itself. There was no outbreak of a bloody race war across the South, and there were no mass desertions from the federal armies. Although there was some discontent and disapproval of Lincoln's action among some Union troops, the majority of soldiers approved of any measure, including emancipation, which would weaken the Confederacy and shorten the war. Anyway, at the time, there was a lot of speculation that in the 100 days between Lincoln's September announcement and January 1st, 1863, he would have second thoughts and decide to back down and not sign the final proclamation. And so among supporters of the proclamation, the last months of 1862 were still a time of anxiety and anticipation. For the 1862 fall elections, Democrats made emancipation the main issue in their quest for control of Congress. And Democrats did score significant gains that fall. They secured the governorship of New York, the governorship and a majority of the legislature in New Jersey, a legislative majority in Illinois and Indiana, and in Washington they scored a net increase of 34 congressmen. Democrats declared great triumph and proclaimed that the verdict of the polls showed clearly that the people of the North were opposed to the Emancipation Proclamation. But as the outstanding Civil War historian James McPherson has pointed out, a closer look at the results shows that the Republicans actually more than held their own. After the fall elections, Republicans retained control of 17 of the 19 free state governorships and 16 of the legislatures. They elected several congressmen from Missouri for the first time, and in Washington made a net gain of five seats in the Senate and retained a 25-vote majority in the House. All in all, the Republicans experienced the smallest net loss of congressional seats in an off-year election in 20 years. So, not too shabby. And most historians seem to agree that the losses the Republicans did suffer in the 1862 fall elections weren't the result of Northern voters' disapproval of the Emancipation Proclamation, as the Democrats claimed, but were rather actually due to the Northern public's frustration with the stalled Union war effort. At any rate, Lincoln and the Republicans didn't allow the Democratic opposition to influence their actions. In fact, the pace of anti-slavery actions increased during the next few months. On November 7th, Lincoln removed McClellan from command of the Army of of the Potomac. Although military considerations prompted this decision, its timing was influenced by the fall elections. 
and it had important political implications. Anyway, then in December, the House decisively rejected a Democratic resolution branding emancipation, quote, a high crime against the Constitution, end quote. And then Congress also passed an Enabling Act, requiring the abolition of slavery as a condition of West Virginia's admission to statehood. But then in mid-December, the Army of the Potomac, now commanded by Ambrose Burnside, suffered a dreadful defeat at Fredericksburg, and speculation ramped up once again that Lincoln wouldn't issue the final proclamation on January 1st. On New Year's Day, however, Abraham Lincoln ended all doubt when he sat down and affixed his signature to the Emancipation Proclamation. Civil War notwithstanding, in one regard, January 1st, 1863, was no different than all the other New Year's days in recent memory. Around 11 o'clock that morning, ushers threw open the doors of the White House, and ordinary citizens surged inside to mingle with dignitaries. Towering above the throng was Abraham Lincoln, patiently greeting visitors by the hundreds, shaking hands with one and all, or, as newspaperman Noah Brooks put it, quote, his blessed pump handle working steadily. But despite appearances, this would be no ordinary New Year's Day in the nation's capital. Today, history would be made. Around 2 p.m., the president quietly slipped out of the East Room and walked upstairs to his office on the second floor, now the Lincoln bedroom. Waiting there that day were a few members of Lincoln's staff, as well as Secretary of State William Seward, along with Seward's son Frederick, who served as his father's private secretary. On the large table near the center of the room rested a document written out by a professional State Department scribe and corrected a final time only hours before, after Lincoln himself noticed a technical mistake in an earlier copy. Now, though, Lincoln solemnly sat down at his accustomed spot at the head of the table. Many had doubted until the very last minute that the president would carry through with his promise to sign the Emancipation Proclamation, but at this moment, at last, he would affix his signature to the most important order of his administration. Lincoln took a steel pen, dipped it in an inkwell, but then paused and put the pen down. To his own surprise, his hand was trembling noticeably. It was not, Lincoln later insisted, quote, because of any hesitation on my part, or as he put it at that decisive moment, quote, I never in my life felt more certain that I am doing right than I do in signing this paper. But the public reception earlier had taken its toll. The president pointed out to those gathered in his office that, quote, I have been shaking hands since nine o'clock this morning, and my hand is almost paralyzed. If my name ever goes into history, it will be for this act, and my whole soul is in it. If my hand trembles when I sign the proclamation, all who examine the document hereafter will say he hesitated. But hesitation was the last thing on his mind. Lincoln insisted, 
Quote, the South had fair warning that if they did not return, I would strike at the pillar of their strength. The promise must now be kept. And so, slowly but firmly, he wrote Abraham Lincoln in large letters at the bottom of the document that declared all slaves in the Confederacy forever free. Letting out a burst of relieved laughter, the president glanced at his effort and declared, That will do. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. As we've indicated before, over the years, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation has been somewhat knocked around, at least in the field of public opinion, and it remains a document shrouded in misunderstanding. One factor contributing to this was Lincoln's own diversionary smokescreens in the run-up to its announcement. Critics have seized upon his statements as evidence that Lincoln cared not at all for the plight of the enslaved blacks. However, such criticism ignores Lincoln's lifelong personal opposition to slavery, and as we said previously on the podcast, what Lincoln was actually doing in the run-up to his announcement of the preliminary proclamation was he was shrewdly working to prepare the northern public to accept the act as a necessary war measure, essential for Union victory. Another related factor for the depth of misunderstanding concerns the 20 months between the outbreak of the Civil War and the issue of the final proclamation. In 1968, the suspicious black militant, Julius Lester, asked, How come it took him two whole years to free the slaves? His pen was sitting on his desk the whole time. But that question reveals a profound ignorance of the state of affairs back then. Remember that American slavery was the creation of state, not federal law. And in that era before the 14th Amendment, 
a legal firewall separated state and federal authority and made direct interference by Washington in state matters, like slavery, a constitutional impossibility. So, standing before that firewall, Lincoln had no confidence that proclamations, presidential or otherwise, would make the slightest indentation in it. If anything, a presidential proclamation issued one day would be followed the next day by a stampede of howling slave owners into federal courts, brandishing lawsuits and demanding injunctions and denouncing Lincoln's subversion of the Constitution. And atop the federal court pyramid at that time sat none other than Chief Justice Roger Taney, who in 1857 had written the infamous decision in Dred Scott that barred the federal government from interfering in slaveholding in the territories. And it required little imagination to picture what Taney would do to an Emancipation Proclamation issued solely on Lincoln's authority as president. And so this helps explain Lincoln's plan to persuade the loyal slaveholding border states to adopt programs of gradual, compensated emancipation. That would be a workaround, right, as far as bypassing the firewall that prevented him from meddling in a state's jurisdiction with regard to slavery. What Lincoln never anticipated, though, was how the border states would absolutely refuse to cooperate and would shoot down his plan for gradual compensated emancipation. And so it wasn't until Lincoln had exhausted the last hope of luring the border states with the bait of compensation that he then turned to issuing a proclamation. And even then, he remained less than certain that a presidential emancipation proclamation would survive a court challenge. It was this uncertainty that fueled his drive to see that a constitutional amendment was adopted before the end of hostilities, a constitutional amendment which would safeguard wartime emancipation and would be the final nail in the coffin of American slavery. And that ended up being the 13th Amendment, of course. In any case, the other great reason for misunderstanding the proclamation comes from within the document itself, from its language and the limitations Lincoln placed on its application. And you still hear the questions today. Why is it so dry and bland? Why didn't it free all the slaves? Why did he justify it as a military necessity? Well, admittedly, the proclamation, as Lincoln signed it on January 1st, 1863, limited emancipation only to the, quote, states and parts of states still in rebellion, and so did not include Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri. And that, on the surface, looked ridiculous. And so critics were quick to point out that in the slaveholding border states, the president's proclamation did nothing, while in the Confederate states, which were beyond his reach, he proclaimed an emancipation that no one could enforce. As the London Times snidely observed, 
Where he has no power, Mr. Lincoln will set the Negroes free. Where he retains power, he will consider them slaves. But the Times, which was always a pro-Confederate newspaper in its ed- editorial sympathies, um, was deliberately looking past two facts. First, laws are not less laws merely because circumstances render them inoperative at a given time. On January 1st, 1863, Lincoln may have lacked the physical power to break the shackles off Confederate slaves, but everyone realized that from that moment on, freedom would follow the American flag. From that moment on, wherever Union armies went in the South, emancipation would be realized. The other fact that the Times' little quip ignored concerned the slaves of the border states who did not benefit from the proclamation. But no matter how much Lincoln might have wanted to emancipate them at the same time as the others, the fact was that the border states were not in rebellion, and in that case Lincoln had no authority as president to use his war powers to free them. Legally and constitutionally, the rebel states were the only places Lincoln as president could issue an emancipation proclamation as a military necessity. Perhaps the unkindest cut of all at the proclamation wasn't based on its lack of reach, but on its lack of eloquence. We've already mentioned how in 1948, Columbia University professor Richard Hofstetter coined the complaint that has dangled around the neck of the Emancipation Proclamation ever since, when he declared that it had all the moral grandeur of the Bill of Lading. And what Hofstetter meant was that unlike the eloquence of the Gettysburg Address or the Second Inaugural, the Emancipation Proclamation was written in flat legal language, and that, for Hofstetter, was damning evidence of Lincoln's insincerity in issuing it, since if he'd really had his heart in it, he would have risen to the occasion. But what Hofstetter and the endless legions who quote him have missed is that the Gettysburg Address and the Second Inaugural were not legal documents. They're much loved and beautiful, but they were never meant to be taken into a court of law. The proclamation was different. The language of emancipation had to be legalistic if it was to withstand the scrutiny of a court eager to pick it apart. And the proof is in the judicial pudding. For no slaves freed under the terms of the proclamation were ever legally returned to slavery by the federal authorities or turned over to slave owners trying to reclaim them. And Southerners who tried to keep their slaves in bondage were successfully prosecuted under the provisions of the proclamation. The Emancipation Proclamation may have had little more grandeur than a bill of lading, but by freeing four million people, it put slavery on the fast road to extinction, a road that Congress and the Lincoln administration had been traveling since the start of the war, and that would be finalized with the passage of the 13th Amendment in 1865, only three months before Lincoln's death. 
The truth is that once Abraham Lincoln signed his name on the final proclamation, the Civil War, slavery, and America were never the same. Did Lincoln know that by the stroke of his pen, he would be launching what James McPherson has aptly called a Second American Revolution? Almost certainly he did. Why else would he pause until he could sign his name in the clear, firm hand he desired? By affixing his name to the document, Abraham Lincoln was not only taking a giant step toward ending the shame of slavery in America, but he was helping guarantee the survival of the nation. As he put it in his annual message to Congress a month before issuing the final proclamation, quote, by giving freedom to the slave, we assure freedom to the free. George Boutwell, an abolitionist who was governor of Massachusetts and also represented that state in both the U.S. House and Senate, reminiscing 20 years after Lincoln's death, was sure that Lincoln's fame would be carried into the future by his writings, and especially the, quote, three great papers, the Proclamation of Emancipation, his oration at Gettysburg, and his second inaugural address. Boutwell's placement of the Emancipation Proclamation at the head of that list was no mistake, for he was convinced that the proclamation was Abraham Lincoln's greatest official act. Boutwell shared his belief that, quote, If all that Lincoln said and was should fail to carry his name and character to future ages, the emancipation of four million human beings by his single official act is a passport to all of immortality that earth can give. There is no other individual act performed by any person on this continent that can be compared with it. The Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, were each the work of bodies of men. The Proclamation of Emancipation in this respect stands alone. The responsibility was wholly upon Lincoln. The glory is chiefly his. No one can now say whether the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution of the United States or the Proclamation of Emancipation was the highest, best gift to the country and to mankind. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Abraham Lincoln, Redeemer President by Alan C. Galzo. And yes, this is two book recommendations in a row authored by Galzo. And no, we aren't on his payroll. Um, this biography of Lincoln isn't so well-known or popular as some others, such as David Herbert Donald's or Ronald C. White Jr.'s. Um, this, though, is an extremely interesting biography of Lincoln. Gelso himself describes it in this way, saying, quote, The work we have to do here is an intellectual biography about a man not usually thought of as an intellectual in an era which, unfortunately, is not often thought of as an arena of ideas. End quote. But what Gelso does, and does very well, is shed light on Abraham Lincoln as a man of ideas, 
and he seeks to understand where those ideas came from. Anyway, we highly recommend Abraham Lincoln, Redeemer President, if you want to dig a little bit deeper into the Lincoln story and want a biography that covers an angle that really no one has covered like this, as far as we know. Okay, uh, so as always, here's the obligatory reminder that you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also with the podcast, you can begin the enrollment process to join the ranks of the Strawfoot Brigade. What is the Strawfoot Brigade, you ask? Well, for the low, low cost of just $5 a month, you can become a member of the Brigade, and you will not only be supporting the podcast in a very real and tangible and financial way, but you get access to over 55 members' episodes. Uh, 56 to be exact, since just yesterday we released the latest show on the Great Sioux Uprising of 1862 uh, up in Minnesota. And a big thanks to the latest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Kirk, William, Malcolm, Rick, and Hannah. And then as we wrap up this episode, I'll just let you know that with the next show, we're going to be heading back out west. We've spent quite a bit of time in the eastern theater of the war, um, going back to the Peninsula Campaign, um, then the Seven Days, then Second Manassas, and then we went right into the Antietam story arc. Uh, so beginning with the next episode, we'll jump back over to the western theater, and we'll see what's been happening out there. All right, uh, that's it for now, though. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.